when I was an adolescent, I discovered that because I'm 6'4 and fairly muscular, if I exercised for a few hours a day, that it didn't really matter what I ate. I could have six or 7,000 calories a day and I wouldn't gain weight. And I, I thought it was a freaking superpower. I didn't think it was a problem. <laughs> it t- two pizzas, multiple boxes of muffins, lattes, chocolate bars, you name it. If it wasn't nailed down, I, it went inside me and I thought it was great. And I, I lived to eat. I, I worked out so I could so I could eat too. Keeping yourself motivated takes work. If you don't work out your body, you get fat. If you don't work on your motivation, you become unmotivated. Welcome to the Motivational Voice Podcast, your source for inspiration and motivation to achieve your goals, empowering you one word at a time. Umar Jang is an author and a blogger, and he will get you motivated to do whatever you need to do. This is Motivational Voice Podcast, and this is Umar Jang. What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of the Motivational Voice Podcast. This is session number 20. I am excited to be back in front of the mic and uh, to bring you more exciting episodes and more inspirational stories. I pretty much took a month-long break from podcasting, which was somewhat unintentional. My oldest son just started college last week, and my youngest son switched schools. He used to go to a French school, a French immersion school, and now I put him back into a regular school in our city, uh, where he will be taking, going into third grade, actually. And in July, I launched my first novel, which I mentioned in passing, in episode 19 of this podcast. Anyway, all that put together made for a very crazy busy summer, which is why I was uh, somewhat absent uh, for the past month or so. But I am back and more determined than ever to bring you more value-packed interviews and more of what you love. Speaking of value, I would very much like to start creating transcripts for the podcast so that you can download them and read them at your leisure, but also give you more frequent content and special bonus content. Now, I've mentioned this in the past, and I've never gotten around to making a plan to doing it because of everything that's been happening uh, in my with my other projects. To help with that goal, I set up a page on Patreon. For those who don't know, Patreon is a site where you can um, create a page where your fans and your listeners can go to to help support and follow the podcast. So if you're interested and you would like to support the podcast, you can head on over to my Patreon page and become a patron of the podcast for as little as a few bucks a month, less than the cost of a cup of coffee. I would really appreciate that. Go to patreon.com. That's a Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash motivational voice podcast it's all in one word that's a patreon p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash motivational voice podcast to become a supporter of the podcast i will have a link in the show notes for those of you who are interested in supporting the podcast all right enough said let's get into today's episode today we are talking about how to stop binge eating or overeating People tend to associate binge eating to women, but according to some estimates, at least 20 million women 
and get this 10 million men in the United States alone suffer from an eating disorder at some point in their lives so whether you are a man or a woman you could suffer from binge eating disorder also known as BED BED is a potentially life-threatening eating disorder that impacts millions of people around the world regardless of where you come from what your background is what your age is what your gender is and your economics and your background my guest today is Dr. Glenn Livingston a clinical psychologist by training who himself overcame overeating and has dedicated himself to helping others suffering from overeating and binge eating disorder. Now this podcast episode has a ton of mind-opening information that could change forever how you look at your own eating habits. Let's listen to my interview with Glenn. Glenn, thank you very much for joining me on the podcast. It's a pleasure to have you. It's a pleasure to be here. I was looking forward to this. Great. Oh, yeah, yeah. Same, same here. Uh, Glenn, would you go ahead and just uh, introduce yourself to our listeners and tell us a little bit about uh, who you are and what you do? Do you want the fancy introduction or the personal introduction? <laughs> uh, you, you get to choose. Well, I'm a clinical psychologist by training, although that's not really what I do now. I grew up in a family of 17 psychotherapists and counselors and psychologists, and you don't really want to come to our reunion. I spent a lot of years because I never had children and I didn't commute, so I had a lot of time to develop my career. And I spent a lot of time, in addition to my clinical practice, consulting for big companies on advertising. And I, I was kind of on the wrong side of things. I feel a little guilty about it now. But I work with a lot of big food companies and big pharma companies, and I, I know what goes on from the inside on that, from that perspective. But all things considered, I wound up after solving my own problem, I had a very serious binge eating problem. I'll explain to you a little more about that in a minute. But I wound up writing a book on a very strange way that I stopped overeating myself. And it turned out that it was really popular, that people liked the idea. And so that's what I do now is I, we've got 500,000 copies in distribution and we have a network of coaches that help people with that and an awful lot of free material to help people stop on their own. That's what I do, is I, I help people stop binge eating. Okay. But per, personally, when I was an adolescent, if, if I may, when I was an adolescent, I discovered that because I'm 6'4 and fairly muscular, if I exercised for a few hours a day, that it didn't really matter what I ate. I could have six or 7,000 calories a day and I wouldn't gain weight. And I, I thought it was a freaking superpower. I didn't think it was a problem. <laughs> It t two pizzas, multiple boxes of muffins, lattes, chocolate bars, you name it. If it wasn't nailed down, I, they went inside me, and I thought it was great. And I, I lived to eat. I, I worked out so I, could, so I could eat too. As I got older, and I was a doctor, and I had patients, and I had to commute, I just didn't have the time to work out, and my metabolism slowed down a little bit. And I lost my superpower because I, I couldn't spend – two, three, four hours a day working out. I could barely spend two hours a week working out at that time. So I started to gain weight, but I found that I couldn't stop thinking and obsessing about food. I developed a pattern of obsession. And it was really horrible because I've always been a psychologist first and foremost. What's always been most important to me is how I am able to be present with my clients 
And I was working with some seriously risky clients at the time, people who were suicidal, people who had just experienced the aftermath of a a marital affair. And you have to be very, very present for those people. And I couldn't be because I was thinking, when can I get to the deli and dislodge my jaw and empty the contents of the deli tray into my jaw? And being a psychologist from a family of psychologists, I I looked for psychological solutions. I I thought that it wasn't what I was eating, it's what was eating me. I tried to solve all my emotional problems. I went to psychologists and psychiatrists and I went to Overeaters Anonymous and I even did a 40,000 person study because I I was I did a specialty in marketing research and I had the ability to conduct these large studies very inexpensively. So over the course of a couple of years, I got 40,000 people to take a survey on the internet. And I looked at the relationship between the foods that they couldn't stop eating and different personality and lifestyle satisfaction variables. And I found some really interesting things. I found that people who couldn't stop eating chocolate like me tended to be lonely or brokenhearted. People who couldn't stop eating salty, crunchy foods tended to be stressed at work. And people who couldn't stop eating soft, chewy, starchy foods tended to be stressed at home. These weren't perfect correlations. Some of them were small, but there was a clear pattern. And I thought that that was going to be a bit of a miracle. And I dove deep on some of them for myself personally. I looked at the chocolate because I always started my binges with chocolate. And I asked my mom, who's also a psychotherapist, I said, mom, is there anything in my history that would suggest that I can't stop eating chocolate when I feel lonely or depressed or brokenhearted. And she got this horrible look on her face. And she said, Glenn, I'm so embarrassed. But when you were a boy, maybe one year old, my grandfather, your, your, my father, your grandfather had just gotten out of prison. And I was devastated because I'd adored him my whole life. And I had no idea he was doing these things. And he was guilty. Mm-hmm. And I was horribly depressed about it. On top of that, your, your father, my husband, was a captain in, in the army. And they were talking about sending him to Vietnam. And I was terrified. And so I was really depressed and scared all the time. And I didn't have the wherewithal to hug you and hold you and feed you the right way when you came running to me. So what I did is I got a big bottle of chocolate Bosco syrup. And I put it in a little refrigerator on the floor. And I said, Glenn, go get your Bosco. Whenever you came running to me, I said, go get your Bosco. You go running over to the floor. You take out the Bosco. And you would suck on the bottle. And you go into a chocolate sugar coma. Right? And if this were... I, I don't mean to interrupt you if you wanted to say something. No, no, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, it, I, yeah, I wanted actually to just uh, – sorry to interrupt, but we'll, we'll, there's a lot to unpack here uh, yeah. in, in what you said so far. Uh, but perhaps just going back to, to basics for, for people who may not be familiar with uh, the concept, what is binge eating? Oh, well, I mean, you could look at the DSM-5 diagnosis, which involves a certain number of overeating episodes per month and – you know, the uh, corresponding deficit in self-esteem and all types of things like that. But I, I prefer to illustrate it like this. There are some people that feel like they just, that they periodically just can't stop. Everybody eats a little bit beyond their own best judgment, but there are some people who feel like they just can't stop. And that's really what binge eating is, is when you have these episodes often triggered by feeling too full, by the way, often the real binge starts when people feel full. And they expand their stomach and they eat beyond the point of pain. I believe that's because there is some mechanism in the brain that says, if I have dieted or put myself in an environment where calories are too scarce and nutrition is too scarce, then as soon as it's available, we better hoard it. 
And that's where people have the experience of eating until their teeth bleed or, you know, there are some fairly extreme elements of that. But um, really, I prefer that people define for themselves whether they are out of control or not. And if, if you are, you know it. And a lot of what I say will apply even if you're not totally out of control, even if you just want to eat a little better or become a little bit more of a master over being able to stick to a diet or being able to stick to a rule that you set up for yourself. Um, so that, that's how I like to answer that question. Yeah. And by out yeah. of control, you mean people can't stop eating or they're, they're eating and, and uh, having basically un- unhealthy behaviors that, are, that relate to eating. Uh, that mm-hmm. you eat and then you go vomit the food or something like that. Well, yeah, no, that, that would be bulimia. Okay. And I, I, I would have been diagnosed as exercise bulimic, bulimic because I was purging the calories by over-exercising. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if there are behaviors associated with trying to get rid of the damage, like desperate behaviors associated with trying to get rid of the damage, that's usually bulimic. Yeah. So the, Okay. So the difference is that uh, you know, uh, someone who's binge eating is more someone who's just eating anything basically that comes across. Um, they may not necessarily, uh, I guess, regurgitate that food. They may not necessarily take that food out. They're just eating as much as they can, as opposed to someone who's bulimic who maybe yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, binge eating disorder and bulimia are, are two separate diagnoses. And what they have in common is both of them tend to binge, but bulimics purge and binge eaters don't purge. Okay, so that's a key difference. Yeah. Oh, okay, that's, yeah. that's good to call out. Often, one or both of them may have a history of anorexia. And by, by the way, I, I can't offer to diagnose, treat, or cure any disease, disorder, or condition via this podcast. So if you suspect that you do have that, I, I need to refer you to a local doctor. But um, they, they are related in many ways, but they have different treatment protocols and um, different outcome expectations. So it is important to get an accurate diagnosis. Continue on with with what you were saying earlier. You are from a family of, of it sounds like psychologists, and you you had your own journey where you struggled through this. Um, what what were some of those major triggers, if you will, things that push you into binge eating? You mentioned uh, some of it was emotional, but was there a certain specific event or or something that happened in your life that caused you to want to do that? Well, I always did it when I was a teenager and I always got away with it. It's that I had trouble stopping with that. What I learned from the story I was telling you was that the emotions can trigger the desire to binge, but they're not the cause of the binge itself because there's always a mediating voice. Here's what I mean. When I discovered what I discovered about chocolate, that my, my mother was sending me to the Bosco chocolate syrup on the floor whenever I was lonely or coming crying to her, I thought, well, gee, if this were the movies, we would have had a big hug and a big cry, and I'd never have trouble with chocolate again, right? Right. But it wasn't the movies. We did have a big hug and a cry, and I did forgive myself. I'm more compassionate towards myself for what I've been through because of that. I had a closer relationship with my mom because of that, but it didn't stop the chocolate binging. It actually made it worse. The reason it made it worse was because there was this little voice in my head that said, you know what, Glenn? You're right. Your mama left a chocolate-sized hole in your heart, and if you don't, until you find the love of your life and you're no longer lonely and brokenhearted, you're going to have to go binge on chocolate. Let's go get some. Yippee. 
So it actually became a justification for binging more. And that that was very puzzling to me because I was going under the assumption that if I knew why I binged when I had emotional problems, then, then I could stop it. But it didn't turn out to be the case. What turned out to be the case first was that the food had a life of its own. Um, we didn't have chocolate bars in the savannah. We didn't have chocolate bars in the tropics as we were evolving. This is the things that people binge on are typically not vegetables or fruits. It's typically some hyperpalatable concentrated form of salt or sugar or oil or excitotoxins or some packaged food that's advertised brilliantly and made made to look like we can't live without it. And these things are they're kind of a form of drugs and they they overstimulate our nervous system. And if you look at if you look at a bunch of the animal studies where they short circuit the pleasure machinery of the animal's nervous system for mammals, what happens is those mammals will ignore their survival needs. So you you put an electrode in a rat's brain in the pleasure center, and you let that rat rat self-stimulate by pushing the button. That rat will push that button thousands of times per day. A starving rat will ignore its food to push the button thousands of times a day. A nursing mother rat will abandon her pups to push it thousands of times a day. Rats will crawl over painful electrical grids to push it thousands of times per day. The result of short-circuiting our pleasure machinery is self-neglect. It's extreme self-neglect. And that has nothing to do, that, that's purely neurological. It has nothing to do with what happened to us emotionally as children. It has nothing to do with um, our upbringing or our personal psychology. It's purely neurological and physiological. And so even though the emotional pattern may have triggered the binges to start with, what I actually prefer to go to eat, the fact is that once the fire was burning, it had a life of its own, and I had to find another way to disempower it. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, no, it does. Uh, yeah, again, there's a lot of interesting stuff in, in that uh, in that response. As far as the causes, it's not necessarily the, the food could be the, the the trigger, the types of foods, but the causes would be something that perhaps happened in the per- person's life uh, that they're trying to to cover or mask. Am I getting that right? Yeah, it, it could, that can be the original cause that set up the pattern. But once the person is eating these foods, if you really talk to someone who believes that they're eating emotionally, you'll find that they eat when they're happy and they eat when they're sad. They eat to celebrate, they eat to escape. They eat when they're angry, they eat when they're anxious. They're, they're really, it's like there's a voice inside their head that's looking for an excuse to go after the food. And which is not to say that the emotional problems aren't real. I mean, I'm a compassionate guy. If you need a hug, I'll give you a hug. If you want to talk to me about psychological pain, I'm, I'm a psychologist. I can talk about that stuff. I like to talk about that stuff. Right. I'm, I think it's worth soul searching. And I think there's an intimate connection with food. But I'm not going to fool you any longer into thinking that you have to solve all those emotional problems in order to fix your problem with food. What I found was that you had, and this this was in part because I got involved with a with reading some alternative addiction treatment literature from a guy who works mostly with alcohol and drugs, um, Jack Trampy at Rational Recovery, who really talked about the neurology and the lizard brain. And to really bastardize what he said, the our brainstem, the 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 part that evolved first, the lizard brain, when it looks in something in the environment, it says. Do I eat it, do I mate with it, or do I kill it? Do I eat it, do I mate with it, or do I kill it? There's no 
consideration of love or family or tribe or long-term goals or aspirations or spirituality or music or art. It's just eat, mate, or kill. And so the problem is that addictive substances really target the lizard brain. It's the upper brain, the neocortex, and to a lesser extent, the, the limbic system, that are concerned with love and long-term goals and tribe and family and all the things that think make us uniquely human. So the problem with trying to love yourself out of a, an addiction is that you're actually giving more credence to the lizard brain. If you think when you're at Starbucks and there's a big hairy chocolate bar on the counter and it says, you hear this voice that says, gee, chocolate comes from a cocoa bean and a cocoa bean grows on a plant and therefore chocolate's a vegetable, you, you're, and you think you need to love yourself more, you're going to let go of everything that's important to you and you're going you're gonna to give this lizard brain more credence to try to love it. He said overcoming an addiction had more to do with dominating this thing. See that this is a sociopathic part of our nature. This is the very, very animalistic part of our nature, which evolved before we really cared about each other in the way that we want to as humans. And you need to dominate this thing. You don't need to love it back to health. This is not your inner wounded child. This is something you need to dominate and control in much the same way that an alpha wolf deals with a challenger for leadership. And so the embarrassing part for me, like being a sophisticated psychologist who's done tens of millions of dollars of consulting for big industry, the embarrassing part for me is that the way that I solved it after all those years, like 30 years of suffering, the way I solved it was to say, this inner thing, I'm going to call this my inner pig. Just a construct. It's not a real pig. It's just my inner pig. I'm going to write, I'm going to make, I'm going to make lines in the sand that define what I will and won't do with food. So for example, I'll only ever eat chocolate on a Sunday again. If I had those clear lines, then I would know when my inner pig was squealing for chocolate, because it would be a Wednesday and it would say, well, gee, you know, it won't hurt a little bit, or you can start again tomorrow. I'll say, no, this is a Wednesday. That's a pig squeal. Um, I don't listen to, I don't let farm animals tell me what to do, and I don't listen to pig squeals. And as crude as that was, as crazy as that was, it gave me these extra microseconds at the moment of impulse to be able to wake up and remember who I was and what was important to me. I could remember my diet. I could remember my food plan. And I don't tell people what to eat, by the way. I let them stick to any food plan that they want to. And I started to do better. It wasn't a miracle, but I started to have a sense of power as opposed to hopelessness. And it, it made all the difference in the world over time. And I, I lost uh, about 50 pounds and my blood levels came down and a lot of other things got better. And uh, yeah, then a couple of years ago, someone asked me to publish it on a whim and I did and it took off. And that's why I do what I do now. Thanks for sharing that. Now, that you work with uh, many clients and you have in the, you know, for the past many, many years. What would be uh, your first steps for when someone, I come to you and I say, you know, I, I believe I have a, a binge, binge uh, issue. What are some of the first things that you, you look at uh, to get them to, to heal? So I ask them, what their most significant trigger food or behavior is. Most, most people have one or two preferred ways to start their binges. They might eat all kinds of things afterwards, but they're one or two preferred ways. For example, maybe it's when people are eating standing up in the kitchen. They start picking at leftovers or tasting the recipes that they're making. And before they know it, they say, ah, I blew my diet. I'll just do whatever I want to. Other people might have trouble with a particular food, like 
for me, it was chocolate. Some people might need to be more mindful. So they need, they would need a rule like, I'll always put my fork down between bites. Or I will never start my day without meditating for three minutes. I'll never eat without meditating for three minutes again or something like that. But I'll look for their single most difficult trigger food or behavior. And then I'll say, what role would you like this food or behavior to play in your life? Like, don't let me tell you what to do. According to the goals that you want to accomplish, uh, this afternoon I was talking to someone about hamburgers and she said, you know, I'd like to be able to have a hamburger a couple of times a year. And I say, well, how often and how big a hamburger and where do you want to do that? And the rest of the time you don't want to have them. And she said, yeah, that's the kind of person I'd like to be. I'd like to be the kind of person that just ate hamburgers twice a year at a restaurant. I said, okay. So we made a rule for her that she would never have hamburgers other than at a restaurant twice a year. And you can change these rules when you want to. You, you present them to your inner pig as if they're set in stone because our inner pigs are like two-year-olds. You don't, if you're walking across the street with a two-year-old, you tell that two-year-old, listen, you can never, ever, 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 ever cross the street without holding my hand. The reason you say that, and you don't tell them that when they get older, you're going to teach them how to do it. The reason you say that is because you don't want that two-year-old distracted with even the possibility of the thought of running across the street by themselves. It's too dangerous. Same thing with our pigs. We tell them never because we want them to believe that these things are set in stone. But with forethought and consideration, we can spend a couple of hours thinking through what changes we want to make to our rules at any time, have a 24-hour delay, and then put the changes into place. So you don't have to be frightened of the word never, but it does work really clearly to define the bullseye that you're aiming for. So I look for that. I look for one rule, and I tell people to arbitrarily declare themselves as 100% confident that they're going to do it, and then listen for their pig to tell them why they shouldn't. You don't have to call it a pig, by the way. If you don't like that term, you can call it your inner food monster or your inner B-I-T-C-H. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, so you get them to set that rule. Um, and what what do they do next after that? Is there an action plan to, you set the rule, you determine what that food item is, and then what do you do next? Well, I like people to live with the rule for a couple of weeks and and to recognize that once the rule is in place, you know that any thought, feeling, or impulse that suggests that you're going to break the rule either now, either, either now or in the future until the day that you die, you know that that is a squeal. And since you define your pig as that destructive part of yourself that wants you to break the rules, the moment that you know that it's a squeal, you can ignore it. You don't have to debate it. You don't have to find the uh, illogical lie in the squeal. Like, for example, uh, a little bite won't hurt. That's an illogical lie because a little bite does hurt most people in those situations. You don't have to find those. All you have to do is recognize that this is a squeal. This is coming from that destructive part of your brain that wants to override your best laid thinking and plans, and you ignore it. I don't, I don't eat pig slop, and I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. It's as crazy as that sounds, and you go on with your day. I don't, I don't want that. My pig does. You disclaim ownership of the desire, and you separate your constructor from your destructive self in that regards, and you just observe how that gives you a choice that you didn't have before. And slowly over the course of a couple of weeks, you begin to recognize that you're not hopeless. You're not powerless. You, you're not diseased. You, you've got a healthy appetite that's been corrupted by industry. And you just have to make the decision 
very to draw very clear lines in the sand to become the kind of person that ignores all of those excuses. Once you've done that for a few weeks and you're starting to reclaim your sense of power, then we could look at the rest of your diet. Then I'll say to people, well, what else do you need to adjust to accomplish your health and fitness goals? Most people don't lose weight during that first couple of weeks, but what they do is they reclaim their sense of hope and enthusiasm and power. And that means everything because now they feel like, okay, I know how to install this rule. I know how to make it work. Let's, um, let's figure out what adjustments we need to make so that I actually can lose weight or I can get to my goal. Yeah. No, I think that's... And, and I like people... Yeah, go ahead. Go on. I was just going to say I like people to lose weight slowly. I find that if people lose weight too quickly, they tend to bounce back. So no more than one or two pounds a week. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's realistic. Uh, anything... I tend to have a rule in life that anything you do and you want to be successful at it, you have to do in moderation uh, or yeah. you have to do in steps and, and plan it uh, slowly. Uh, you know, anyone who goes from zero to one million, you know, they probably took a shortcut and, and that, it won't necessarily work for everyone. So I think that's a, yeah. uh, that's a good point. Now, the, one of the things that, that's really difficult, to, I, I can't help but think that there is a, a certain habit um, portion of this where uh, we, we, you know, what you're saying in terms of having them to live with that, that particular rule for a certain number of time. Is, is that for trying to build the habit to force your, to rewire your brain, uh, so to speak, to force you to kind of get used to those healthier patterns? You know, if, uh-huh. if, if I'm thinking all of a sudden, hey, I'm going to have some ice cream, I want to have a couple of sneakers bars, and I'm going to have this and that, uh, it's really you kind of rationalizing the, uh, your, the goals that you've set to say, no, I don't want that. That's, that's my quote-unquote bad self or the pig in you or the craving, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. And resist that, that urge. That, yeah. Is that a, a summary, a good summary of what you said? Yeah, it's a very good summary. We're, we're trying to teach you that there are two parts of the brain, that there's not some deep emotional problem you have to solve. This is not really very complex. You just need to learn how to recognize when that lower part of your brain is trying to take over and you learn to dismiss it. Like Catherine Hansen says, you dismiss it like you dismiss an alarm clock. Okay. And when they get to that stage and they've built a good habit of, of, of controlling, you know, their eating habits, uh, how does that translate in terms of, uh, for a long-term, um, for a long-term result? usually takes a couple of months, maybe a half a dozen sessions or so. And by the way, not everybody needs sessions. Some people just read the book and follow their procedures and do it on their own. But over the course of a half dozen sessions or so, where people make modifications to their plans, and they start to hear new tricky things that their inner pig is saying to convince them to, to break it. Like, like, you know, a couple of months of making modifications to get to the point that they feel like they're on the right plan and they're not really dieting, dieting anymore. They're feeling like, like they're in control and they're free and the food is not such an issue in their life anymore. Maybe they haven't lost all the weight. It's coming off slowly, but they feel in control. They know what they're doing. They know where the boundaries are. They feel the way that the people who like this approach will say that they feel all snuggled in, that the rules make them safe, much the same way that the rules of the road make you safe, that there are 
stop signs and stoplights at the dangerous intersections. And because there are stop signs and stop signs at the dangerous intersections, you can move about the city freely. And you don't have to think about which intersection is dangerous and which intersection isn't. It's all taken care of for you. It's kind of like that. You do your own work to make that happen. Okay. And I want to go back to what you said earlier at the top of the podcast when you you mentioned uh, the survey that you did with, uh, I think it was the number was 40,000 people about the types of food that they gravitate towards. Uh, now, one thing I want to ask about that is with all the, I think I read somewhere it was something like 3,000 images or, or advertising that we see on a daily basis that kind of uh, throws the, these images and this concept of food that's kind of glamorized. Yeah. And, uh, and how is, is there anything that people can do to perhaps resist that? Is there perhaps a, some kind of subconscious uh, message or, you know, that these advertisers are pushing on us that we can try to what, resist? What? It's the same thing that you can do to eat well in a restaurant or eat well when you travel is to think through beforehand what kind of person you want to be around particular food. So let's say you're finding you have trouble with, I don't know, some type of a food bar. Well, you can ask yourself what role you want that food bar to play in your life, when you want to have them and when you don't. And do the work of thinking through those decisions beforehand. The problem with willpower is that all the research lately documents that it's not a black and white thing that we have or we don't. It's more like gas in the tank. And that gas is burned every time that we have to make a decision. Not just food decisions, by the way, every decision. There are only so many good decisions we can make over the course of the day. We find that if we give people difficult math problems and then offer them marshmallows, the people who did difficult math problems will have more trouble resisting the marshmallows than the people who didn't. Working your brain wears down your willpower. And so when people are trying to rely on willpower to resist the billions, if not trillions of dollars going into advertising science to get them to to binge on these foods, um, they've got another thing coming. It's very difficult to do. But if you say, I will allow myself to have three of these bars per week on a Monday, Wednesday, or Friday, and only one at a time, then you've already made your decisions and you're no longer relying upon willpower. Here's a way to think about the difference. It's the difference between white knuckling a rule or a diet and becoming the kind of person that does X, Y, or Z. When I say I only ever eat chocolate on Sundays, what I'm really saying, it's not that I'm a strict food Nazi and I comply with this rule, it's that I'm, I'm just not the kind of person who eats chocolate during the week. Similar to if you walk into a diner and there's a $20 bill on the table because the waitress didn't see her tip, and she says, I'll be right back, I just got to get you a menu. And she didn't see the tip either. And there's nobody up front, there's no window, there's no video camera, nobody would see you take it. Virtually nobody that I talk to says that they would take that $20 bill. I ask them why, and they say, because I'm not a thief. That woman worked hard for her money, and I'm not a thief. And I say, so as a matter of character, you've decided not to do something pleasurable, which doesn't require any willpower not to do. It's, it's character trumping willpower. The kind of person you decide to be trumps the day-to-day willpower decisions that you have to make. So you can decide to be the kind of person that only has three food bars a week on a Monday, Wednesday, or Friday. You can decide to do that, and then you'll be much less vulnerable to all that advertising. If it's an op- if it's an option for you, and then you see, I'll tell you some research I know about in the food bar industry, 
there was a VP of marketing at a major food bar manufacturer that I worked with who explained to me that the pivotal profit insight that they had was to take the vitamins out of the bar and put it into the packaging instead. And I said, so you mean what you're telling me is that you make it look healthy as opposed to be healthy. And that was perfectly legal and that worked for you. And he said, yeah, it goes on all over the place. There are not enough regulations on what's going actually going on in the industry. And it's perfectly legal for them to make things look healthy as opposed to actually be healthy. And they're not saying that it's healthier, but they're with a vibrancy of colors and, and a diversity of colors. They're implying in the same way that a vibrant salad, which had cabbage and carrots and greens and, you know, beets and all those different colors in it would have a diversity of micronutrients available for you. They're kind of implying it with the packaging, which hits your evolutionary buttons and says, oh, I need this. See, if you're going to walk into that type of power, and there are, I think, 7,000 messages about food broadcast on the airwaves and the internet every year, maybe five of them are about fruit and vegetables, right? So, so if you're going to walk into that type of power and face that, thinking maybe I will, maybe I won't, they're going to they're gonna beat you every time, man. They, they're going to beat your willpower down every time. But if you make the decisions beforehand and you decide what kind of person you want to be, then you can, you can stand strong. For those who have, uh, who may think that, well, they have some, you know, some binge eating issues, I know, I would guess that there's some kind of uh, shame perhaps uh, associated with this, having this disease. What can they do? Perhaps, you know, they want to go out and get help, but they are afraid or ashamed of coming forward. Yeah. What, what would you say to them to, you know, if they're listening, what would you say for them to do? Well, a couple of things. First of all, I like to begin to turn shame into anger because I don't think we have a disease. Uh, personal opinion, my, my profession thinks otherwise. I don't think we have a disease. I think we have a healthy appetite that's been corrupted by industry. And I actually think that people who choose food as their drug of choice tend to be nicer people than people who choose drugs and alcohol. We're not out driving drunk and killing people. We're not in the bar because we just ate a bunch of donuts picking a fight, right? We're not typically spending a fortune on, you know, drugs and alcohol and gambling and all that kind of thing. We're, we tend to be nicer people who are trying to get along in society. So there's that. You can be less ashamed that you've chosen an addiction that's less harmful to society than other people choose. But, but beyond that, there's nothing that you've done with food that I haven't done. And if I can stand up here, you know, being a, a sophisticated psychologist with um, multiple millions of dollars of consulting behind me, and I can say that I've eaten out of the garbage, I've gone to seven different drive through so no one person would know how much I was eating. I've stolen my roommate's food without telling him. I've eaten all of my ex-wife's food when she was looking forward to it after a long trip. There's, I've eaten off the floor. There's nothing that you've done with food that I haven't done then perhaps that can alleviate some of the shame. In terms of an actual next step to take, there are a couple of things. If you're really in trouble and you think you've got an official diagnosis and you haven't gotten professional help yet, then by all means, you know, call, call a local psychotherapist or psychiatrist and get evaluated and see what help might be available for you. Beyond that, there are there are some materials and some coaching that we can offer you, um, a lot of them free, that could be of help. If you go to neverbingeagain.com and click on the big red button with the free readers bo reader bonuses and you sign up for that, 
you'll get a free copy of the book in Kindle, Nook, or PDF format. It's also available in paperback and Audible, but there's a charge for that. So nevermentionagain.com, the big red button. What you also get when we do that is a set of recorded sessions, because this is a weird thing in theory when you and I are just talking about it, but if you can hear how it actually works in practice, it's very inspiring. So I recorded a whole bunch of sessions and we distribute those for free. You can listen to that. You'll also get led to a forum where you can connect with some other people um, and a set of food plan templates for any diet. So what are the starter rules you might consider if you're on low carb versus high carb versus point counting versus you know macro macrobiotic versus whatever you happen to be on. We put some time into thinking through those food plans. Uh, so we have a lot of free resources available neverbingeagain.com and if you need more help there are ways to get coaching from there so it's, it's up to you yeah i'll definitely make sure to link those up in the show notes and uh, i think that's a good point uh, in terms that you are not the first one to do this you are not going to be the last and yeah. uh, it's okay to ask for help uh, and you know recently there's this movement of people who were ashamed to come forward with uh, mental illness and and i think kind of celebrities jumped on, on this and, and made it a little more popular. But along those same lines, if you have a problem, we all have things that we struggle with. So uh, there's also the fact that when you, there's the doctor-patient confidentiality that you know, doctors can't release your information, even if you're a friend or a parent calls, you know, if you're an adult, that's something they have to keep private. So if you're concerned about your privacy, there's that to consider as well. If you see a licensed professional, that's true. Right. When you see a coach, there's a promise of confidentiality on the coach's honor. Right. The courts won't honor that. It's possible the courts could break into that. But I, I can tell you after more than 20 years of coaching with more than 1,000 people that I've never had a court force me to reveal what um, what a client told me. So it's it's pretty rare. Well, thanks. Is there anything else you want to mention before we start wrapping up the podcast? No, I really appreciate the time. I'm trying to get the message out, help as many people as we can. It's not for everyone. Some people think it's a harsh method, but it's very different and it works where other things don't. So if you're struggling and other things are not working for you, you might want to give this a shot. Yeah, no, I think that's a good point. And for for someone who who actually I was born and raised for most half of my life in outside of the United States. And I, I've been living here for over 20 years now. One of the first things that I noticed when I came to the U.S. was just the sheer options that we have for foods. You know, the, the first time I walked into a McDonald's, you know, the guy said, I said, I want a burger. The guy said, pointed up to the board and said, which one do you want? There were, you know, seven, eight combos. And it's yeah. not... It's a full industry that we have that, that put millions and millions of dollars behind advertising. And uh, for some of us, it's a losing battle almost because you're fighting against this machine. Uh, but just know that there are people like Glenn out there who, who are there to help. And they, they coach people and they really help kind of get your life back and take your life back. We're getting success. We're getting success with the method. So Right. Yeah. Right. So. So I'll definitely make sure that people can reach out to you. Uh, what's the best place where they can reach you? Neverbingeagain.com. Okay. Never been never, again, so you, 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 can, you, can, you can get the bonuses or you can click the contact button there. That gets to me eventually. Right. Okay. That yeah. sounds good. I'll make sure to put that in, in the show notes so people can reach out to you if they have any questions. Thanks so much. So thank you very much, Glenn. I know you have to go, so I'm going to let you go. Thank you very much okay. for coming on the podcast. And thank you, sir. Yeah, we'll, we'll stay in touch. Okay, very good. Thanks. Thanks. Bye. That was my interview with Dr. Glenn Livingstone on how to stop binge eating. 
hopefully the interview gave you an insight into this disorder and if you or someone you know is suffering from it. I hope that you find the help you need. I truly do. We all face challenges and have to deal with it. But the most important thing I want you to know is that you don't have to do it alone. And I'm not just talking about binge eating. I'm talking about anything, any hardships or any challenges you're going through in life. You don't necessarily have to face it alone. For nearly every affliction, there is a remedy and people who can help you through it. So make sure you reach out and get the help you need if you are suffering from BED or you know someone in your circles who needs help. Finally, I just would like to say thank you very much for listening to the podcast. As always, I encourage you to share the podcast because it may just be what the person you share it with needed to take a positive direction in their lives. So share the podcast, leave a review on iTunes or wherever you download the podcast from. I would really appreciate that. I hope that you have a good rest of your day, wherever you are. And as always, please stay safe and motivated. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to the Motivational Voice Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and rate it on iTunes. Get show notes and the latest blog posts at omarjang.com.